0: Hello, I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the Fireplace Series, interdisciplinary and impromptu exchanges between two speakers from different areas of research. Each brings curiosity and generosity, and together they explore common and uncommon ground. The Fireplace conversation you are about to hear took place on the 1st of November 2019 between visiting scholar Dr. Selina Couture of the Drama Department of the University of Alberta and Dr. Dorit Naaman of the Film and Media Department at Queen's. The topic of their talk together is settler Accountability and Responsibility.
1: Welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Alison Moorhead and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Art History and Art Conservation. The Fireplace series is co-directed by my colleague Laura Cameron, professor in the Department of Geography and Planning, and myself, a settler-identified scholar descended from settlers to the American South, including slave owners, and Scottish and Croatian settlers who came to work in the industries around the Welland Canal in the early 20th century. In this area, the Six Nations of the Grand River continue to demand compensation for the flooding to their lands that occurred as a result of the building of the first Welland Canal in the the 1820s and 1830s. I'd like to offer warm thanks to our sponsors, the library, as well as the Faculty of Arts and Science, to the faculty office and library staff who've worked very hard to put this together, Uh, to Dylan Robinson and Karen Zionce, who invited Selena Couture to campus to engage with a range of audiences. And a special thanks to the series coordinator, Claudia Hertenfelder, who is a PhD student in geography, whose work behind the scenes, uh, has been extraordinary and invaluable. The Fireplace series was inaugurated just over two years ago by Dean Barbara Crow and Martha Whitehead, and it continues under the Dean's ongoing support and that of the new university librarian, Michael Vandenberg. The series, as the Dean mentioned, is intended as a set of interdisciplinary conversations on topics of broad interest and concern. We invite two scholars from different disciplinary backgrounds or fields to chat informally and to seek common and uncommon ground. Today's speakers have agreed on some broad parameters for their conversations, and I'll get them going with a question and a sort of a prompt. After about 45 minutes, I will invite you, the audience members, to join in with your own questions. Today's conversation, as you will know, is entitled Settler Accountability and Responsibility. And takes place between two scholars whose research on settler identities and relationships to occupied spaces, places, and peoples is largely, although I think as you will hear, not solely, situated in very different parts of the world. Visiting scholar Selina Couture is assistant professor at the University of Alberta, where she teaches Canadian and Indigenous theatre and performance. She identifies as a settler historian working in Edmonton Treaty 6 Territory and Métis homelands. A central focus of Couture's work is the development of decolonial methodologies in theatre and performance studies, prioritizing settler responsibilities. Her about-to-be-published book, Against the Current and Into the Light, Performing History and Land in Coast Salish Territories and Vancouver's Stanley Park, explores a range of public performances in the space now known as Stanley Park from the late 19th century to the present. It focuses on the role of Vancouver's first archivist, J.S. Matthews, in constructing the park as a terra nullius, as well as how hankaminem language thought, and place names express indigenous histories and maintain indigenous land despite the ongoing presence of displays of whiteness at the iconic park. Dorit Naman, who identifies as a settler to more than one place, is professor and graduate coordinator for film and media here at Queens. Her work focuses on Israeli and Palestinian cinemas and combines theoretical interests in gender, militarism, and nationalism with her filmmaking practice. Her series of short videos, Daya Documentary, addresses political questions about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict while also considering issues of authority and voice in documentary filmmaking itself. Naaman's more recent project, Jerusalem, We Are Here, launched in 2016, is a suite of interactive poetic videos and virtual walking tours. Co-created with members of the Palestinian and Palestinian diasporic communities, the project digitally layers the Palestinian past onto the Israeli present of southern Jerusalem. So, Hopefully that's the most formal talk you'll hear (laughs) all today. Um, To get the conversation started, and then I'm gonna go exit over here and we're all going to let the conversation get going and then you'll have a chance, as I say, to enter into it. I would just like to ask both Selena and Dorit to please elaborate on your understandings of your own identities as settler scholars and how you conceive of the responsibilities and the accountability that, in your view, stem from those identifications. Uh,
2: Here's a guess. I, I guess, okay, just... I'll, go, I'll go first. That's, a, that's a, a large question, Alison, but I'll, I'll do my best to, to start answering it, and I think it might take us quite a long, a long time. Um, so I'll start by saying, uh, there's lots of ways that I can talk about how how I come to be here today. Um, so I'll start, and I'll come at it from a number of directions. The first way is to uh, to say that I'm an 11th generation descendant of French settlers and a 6th generation descendant of Irish settlers who came to the lands that are now known as, uh, as Canada. And uh, my family's history goes back um, in, in these lands for 379 years. So 133 of those years have been on places that were initially accessed through treaty, um, specifically the Upper Canada Treaties, the Peace and Friendship Treaties, Treaty 2, and Treaty Number 6. So if you do the math, um, that means that 249 years my family's been here uh, in, the, uh, in places where there is no formal treaty-negotiated um, presence. And specifically for me, for most of my adult life that's been on the unceded, um, ancestral and traditional territories of the Hankaminam-speaking and Slewatosh peoples and the Squamish Snitcham-speaking Squamish peoples um, whose lands are currently known as Vancouver. So, uh, And um, since I took up my faculty position at, at the University of Alberta um, which is on Treaty 6 territory and Métis homelands and the stolen reserve of the Papas chase cree people um, I also have uh, I'm trying to learn what are what are my treaty responsibilities um, in those places. So when I speak about all of these things, I I also have to confess to you that I feel a lot of discomfort. I feel like um, talking about my white settler heritage is not uh, it's not something that feels easy to do. And um, I think about that and wonder what like what's the source of that discomfort. And some of it comes from not wanting to claim some sort of originary. Canadian authenticity Um, um, but then uh, sitting with that a bit more I also think that that comes from uh, uh, and sort of I'm prompted to think about this by uh, Anishinaabe Ashkenazi theater scholar Jill Carter who talks about um, what is the burden for people who are descendants of colonial people um, for people who um, committed crimes against humanity and that we now live off of the avails of those crimes and that To deny that burden, to hide that burden, um, means that you can continue to live um, as a bystander. And so um, part of that for me is informed also by, um, as I lived in uh, uh, the territories where I lived for most of my adult life and learned to speak some of the Hankaminam language, I learned the word for for a visitor in Hankaminam is kse imenatan. And it means somebody who walks alongside. Um, and so I think of the prompt about um, how, do you, how do you not be a bystander as a, as a settler, as a descendant of settlers. And that is to walk alongside, to try and uh, be respectful of the people who are already here um, and walk along with them. And notice, like, if they're carrying a burden, obviously you don't just let somebody carry a burden and not offer to help somehow. Right. So that's how I, I try and position uh, myself in that way, with thinking about those values and those insights. Um, and then lastly, I also want to talk about being here specifically, as we already have acknowledged the, um, the territory here, but also I think about the place name that I know for this is Kataraque, um in, in the Ghanian Gaha language, um, which I understand means a place where there's clay. Um, and so I think also about my Return to this place because I came. I, I did my undergraduate degree at Queens, and I was here in the late '80s, um, and I was here in the summer of 1990, the summer of resistance at the Ganasetage and Ganawage peoples. And those experiences of being here in this place um, have shaped me in ways that I still, um, I still am learning. It was part of how leaving here and going to the Coast Salish territories um, at that exact time, certainly influenced the way that I arrived in those territories. Um, and so I think about that very much, and I thank the people who care for these lands and waters and uh, who cared for me then without my understanding and who are still here and caring for us. Um, and so then, uh, I guess the last thing I'll say before I turn it over to Dorit is, uh, in my mother tongue, I say I'm very, very happy to be here. Uh, and in the language of my je I'm very happy to be here. And in the language of the Musqueam people, um, on whose land I've learned to try and work in decolonial ways, I'll say "Wanauai, Danish Karloin, i Detzel." Thanks. Um,
3: so I often start events where I present my project Jerusalem, where here, by stating that I have the. Uh, uncomfortable, heavy burden or unique position, somewhat unique position of being a double settler. And what I mean by that is that I am a settler to Canada because um, I'm not Indigenous and I arrived as an immigrant to this place. Um, so I think in that sense, it's it's very simple. If you're not Indigenous, you're a settler. Um, But throughout, by living here and by being, uh, by working alongside uh, settlers who, especially some graduate students who have been doing a lot of work around unsettling themselves and uh, perhaps decolonizing, um, raising awareness through artwork and through academic work, I've also, and, and by doing the project Jerusalem We're Here, where I was working as an Israeli with Palestinians to bring out the Palestinian, uh, now history, but hopefully one day also um, share the future of Jerusalem. Uh, I started uh, thinking about my position in Jerusalem where I'm sixth generation, so I'm, I'm predating Zionism. My, my ancestors predated Zionism. Uh, came as uh, very orthodox Jews from Hungary. And uh, so I always felt like I, in some sense, I was indigenous to Jerusalem with very deep roots. But uh, the double life of living here and working there, thinking about um, what's happening here, the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, with all its problems, uh, really got me thinking about the fact that in Israel, because I'm Israeli, I'm actually part of a settler society. And I want to unpack that a little bit because I think that um, Zionism, which is the national movement that started in Europe after the 1848 spring of the nation, so it was very much inspired by the European national movements, Uh, it was also inspired by the colonialism that was happening specifically in North America uh, at the same time and uh and while that's not part of the Israeli discourse about zionism when you look at the language and you look at the 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 language of the project is very similar to manifest destiny which was the this kind of language around uh settling uh the US and to some extent Canada Around a divine mission to go and improve a place that is more or less barren with savages, not people that are not quite people like us, bringing uh, progress, modernism, technology. And uh, that language is very much part of the Zionist ethos. One really important uh, distinction, though, between the settler colonialism of North America. So Latin America is a slightly different story, I think. Um, and the Zionist project is that it wasn't an imperial project. It wasn't meant to enrich an imperium or a center elsewhere. It was for people who were fleeing persecution, literally, and uh, were trying to establish a safe homeland for themselves. And this, this difference is very, very important in understanding the, the psyche and the mechanisms of how Zionism works. So it's at once a national uh, regeneration movement, a search for a safe territory, and a settler colonial movement. But there was no going back, and there was no sending back the riches of, of the place. Um, so I think that stating that those two aspects of my, my settler identity is important because they inflect each other and they also lay out some, some they highlight some issues and some problems. Um, one, of, one of the issues for me is that we really have to think about not one category of settler. If you're not indigenous to this land, you're a settler, but many categories, and I don't think we have good language yet. So I think that's part of the project and part of what I'm hoping will come out of today is that collectively we can think about. So some of the categories I think about, and we already have the language, the word "arivan," which was uh, specify the people who were forced to come here, so specifically slaves and indentured um, labourers. But I think we need a word for... uh, settler refugees, people who are fleeing, um, were fleeing wars or persecution in and are fleeing war and persecution, and what's their relationship to coming to this safe haven at the cost of somebody else. Uh, we need to have a specific settler definition for somebody like me, who came as an immigrant. I wasn't persecuted. Um, I arrived here to study, I ended up staying. Um, that's its own category. And I think that what it means is that, uh, or where it's really important to outline that, is I think that it comes with various levels of responsibility, responsibilities, and accountabilities to these lands. So um, I'm really hoping our conversation can kind of unpack or add to more layers to that. Um, I want to say a couple of other things before i <laughs> I uh, pass it back to Selena. Um, I want to say that for some people, I think they are really accidental settlers, so um, I think that refugees that have um, that come are and often are completely not aware of what happens to them. So one of the metaphors that has been used um, for Zionists, that Zionists before the Holocaust, when the people who could see what was coming, there were already many pogroms, there were a lot of uh, restrictions, but even before the rise of Nazism, uh, one of the metaphors that I heard that is useful is um, imagine a person jumping out of a burning building. They don't ask themselves, am I going to land on a person on the sidewalk? And so I think that there are people who arrive to these lands not knowing the history and not, not being able to even ask that question because what they are on route is a route of survival. And um, I also think that some people um, are white in outwardly and get all the benefits, many of the benefits of being white, but are not white inwardly. So their ethnicities are especially not Franco or Anglophone in Canada. Um, people who have had economic and political uh, restrictions too. So those are things that we need to kind of unpack and and talk about. Um, And the last thing I want to say about that is that um, the line between being a victim or a perpetrator can be a very, very fine line. And somebody can be uh, and can be accidental too. It can be a matter of circumstances. People stayed in Jews stayed in Europe, became victims. Jews came here and they became settlers, beneficiary of the settler project and uh, in some some ways active perpetrators and in some ways uh, passive perpetrators. Um, and then uh, I'd like to... Maybe we can talk... I wanted to talk a little bit about land acknowledgement, but maybe... Do you want to talk about it first, and then I'll come Perfect. back to it, because I talked for
4: quite a while.
2: <laughs> <Perfect>. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I had a, an or- expansion, or like a, a continuation of your mm-hmm. rumination on on. The word settler that I'd just like to add into the conversation. Um, and it comes from um, a, a Cherokee literary scholar, Daniel Heath Justice, whose book, uh, Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, came out uh, a couple, of, a couple of years ago now. Um, and in the introduction to his book, he has uh, a really great section on terminology and, and addresses the question of the, the terminology of the settler. So I just want to, I'll read a little bit of that and then also talk a bit more about some other, some other words that I think are really helpful. Um, and, and this is to, to acknowledge that the word settler or settler colonizer is sometimes also used that there are many people who find that offensive they find it insulting and how dare you tell me I'm a settler um, but there's also really compelling reasons why, why to use this word um, and that it's not a reductionist um, category actually um, so so uh, it seems, as, as dorita has been saying, that it can be, uh, just connote one sort of group of people um, and who arrive here, and that's just sort of the simpleness of it. But it's actually not true, as she's been saying, that there's so many different reasons for, for coming here. Um, so I'm just going to quote a little bit of what, uh, what Daniel says. So, the desire to distance oneself and one's community from the violent histories and continuing practices of settler colonialism is an evasion. And he points out that regardless of the reason, the willingness, or the awareness, the groups who arrive in Indigenous lands under the circumstances of settler colonialism, the end is the same for Indigenous people. The displacement and alienation from land and relations. And that the use of the term settler is not a value judgment against individuals, but a politicized acknowledgement of the privileged histories they've inherited and the responsibilities in their work. So he acknowledges that it's an unpleasant term, but he also says, well, that's because settler colonialism is unpleasant. And that reaction that people have is actually, in some ways, it's a, a, a first step of even realizing <laughs> that settler colonialism is not something that an ethical, moral person wants to have attached to them. It's so yet, yet here we are, and, and it is attached to us as if we're here as non-Indigenous people. So... Um, so, using the term and centering all of those unpleasant and complexities that are attached to it is a very useful thing, and that, particularly in places where, um, indigeneity is not, you know, considered already important, so places where that's not the topic of conversation, but actually to so, just use that term in in ways where suddenly people have to think about themselves and situate themselves. Um, and uh, the other piece that I find particularly useful because of the specific nature of it and, and the way that it also historicizes, because I think that's what Dorit has been talking about is this really important uh, work of historicizing um, and that uh, if we look to the words that indigenous people have uh, uh, coined in their languages for the white settlers who arrived in their in their lands, we actually will understand what were the historical relations that... Um began in those places. So, as Dylan has talked about in his work, um, coming from uh, Stala territories, and actually a similar word on the uh, further down on the coast, too, kwetum is the word for white people. Um, and it come and it means starving. the starving ones, the hungry ones. Um, comes from the gold rush uh, the gold rush people who were coming to try and extract extract gold from the lands who were starving. And it still works as a metaphor for. Uh, a way of interacting with land that is greedy, that is extractive, that cares nothing for the consequences of that extraction. So a huilitam actually describes a settler relationship to land very, very well. Um, in other languages, um, where I live right now in, in Edmonton, in Nehiyawin, which is the Cree language, the word for, oh, for white people is Maniao. And Maniao in Cree means the ones, who, uh, the ones who interrupt, the loud-mouthed ones. Um, which is a way of, like, you can, when you, as soon as you hear that and you hear these words, you think of, okay, this is, these were ongoing relations that were repetitive, repeated enough that eventually a term was coined for this. Um, the other, other words that I've learned, um, and in Tsilagi, uh, which is the Cherokee language, the word is yanega, which means the foam of the water moved by wind without its own direction, and it clings to everything that's solid. I mean, again, this is a very evocative uh, word to think about a relation. Um, in Dakota, uh, the term is, would be wasiku, uh, which is the taker of fat. It's actually quite similar and related to, in some ways, the starving ones. So I, I don't know any of the six languages of this land. Maybe somebody here does, um, but it would be interesting for me to know what, it, what, is the, what are the words in those languages for white people who've come here. And correspondingly, as I talked about earlier... Um, in Hankaminam when the word for a visitor um, which is describing what are the good relations of a visitor coming to the land um, is one who walks alongside what is the word here for a visitor or the, the words that describe good visiting here um, and those could be ways to understand how could you actually not be in a settler relationship to this land but instead be in a relationship that respects the people who are already here but also um, has a, a, a a concern about the, the futurity and the consequences of actions um, here. So that's just a, a little bit more on on why that term and and ways to um, even even though it is uh, uncomfortable and can feel like an insult, that it's actually it's the reason that, the reason that it does that is because it's powerful.
3: Yeah, I, I think that um, staying with being uncomfortable is something we don't talk about enough the importance of that Um, I think that deep learning is often uncomfortable at best or very painful and um, and staying with that and letting that be um, be a kind of a mode of operating in between not having not having coherent statements to make about it not having answers not rushing to answers uh, but living with it living with the physical discomfort and the question it arises is really important the risk of course is is uh, to take a shortcut into guilt or what we call white guilt and uh, which recenters it on the settler um, or you know in other context on the on Patriarchy, men who feel guilty for uh, patriarchal structures and stuff like that. So, so the the question is how to keep that thing moving, <clears throat> where one can acknowledge guilt and pain and ho- the horror of realizing those histories and how we are implicated by them, but not turn it to be about us. Um, and I think, and and that is its. There aren't a lot of models, and there haven't been a lot of conversations f- that I could have when I started doing um, Jerusalem We're Here. I was in a, there are definitely thousands of Israelis that are very, very active, both to end the occupation and also a smaller um, number of Israelis but who do the work day in and day out uh, to point out that the question is not just this occupation of 67, but that... The establishment of Israel in 1948 was already very problematic and that the history of Zionism is is a a problematic uh, history. Um, But I didn't really have interlocutors. I did that process uh, in I had interlocutors it's not true, but i was I felt very lonely in this process and um, and part of it is because um, the the neighborhood that I worked in is entirely settled by Israelis and uh, Palestinians have been expelled in the nineteen forty eight war Some of them fled, some of them were physically removed and um opening that door to thinking about not just the past, not just understanding what happened, which is step one, but thinking about what is the responsibility now, in the 21st century, seven years later, what needs to happen, Um, I stood on the precipice for a very long time. And the the crux of it is that the discourse... Is a discourse of a zero-sum game. It's either us or them. If you talk about the right of Palestinians to return to these neighborhoods and to their properties, what does that mean for Israelis? That there is no room. That that means the destruction of Israel, the annihilation of the Israeli state. And I did. And it literally. It took me probably five years from the time I started thinking about these neighborhoods. To the point where I could actually address it, and I could ad- address it in, in uh, multiple ways. Not in there isn't one answer, and um, and my my main uh, my main way to address it is to uh, point out the number of conversations I see need to start happening. So this is really not about an answer. This is about the conversations that we have to make space for. And I think we can only make space for those conversations if we are willing to be uncomfortable and a little bit scared. And in the context of Jerusalem, we're here um, for all sorts of reasons I'm not going to go into right now, but maybe in the discussion, um, the conversation couldn't happen directly between Palestinians and Israelis. So the, the space, for it's too early or too late for that or both in, for various reasons. So what, what I ended up doing is finding a way to mediate, to let the Palestinians speak, but have Israelis, when they watch it, uh, watch it in their own time, where they can take it in without needing to justify their right to the space, without having to be defensive. Um, and some conversations, I think, have to happen face-to-face and some conversations need to happen just among settlers without, without indigenous people present so that there could be room for expressing certain kind of anxieties and working through them and thinking about what responsibility and accountability um, might mean. Mm-hmm.
2: I, mean I, I also want to... Uh... Just to add in, because as I, I, before I came, Dorit and I had a nice con- a conversation, and we kind of explored each other's work a bit, and one of the incredibly powerful parts I, I found about the Jerusalem We Are Here project, and the way that she positioned it, was that um, after the Oslo Accord, there were uh, many, many dialogues projects that had to do with bringing people together and having conversations, and that while those happened, the occupation expanded, and that what's to me that seems to be so incredibly important about Jerusalem we are here is that it's actually about land. It's about land and it's about the occupation of land and to historicize that and to, uh, to bring it forward and to still have conversations, but the conversations are um, not about, not focused on guilt, but actually more focused on accountability or the, word, the words that I find very powerful is actually debt because debt is very material. Like what is... What uh, what do you owe? What have you taken that you owe back? And what and also to think about what's what is the interest that's accumulating as you don't pay back that debt? And I think that that is a way to kind of shift into away from the kind of uh, centering of. Uh, uh, the sort of feelings of being a settler to actually what actions need to be taken, um, and that, that's I think what 's very powerful about that project is it as it does actually focus on a settler relationship to land and how and how to possibly shift that through conversation and through story and through this really uh, just incredibly delicate mediation that that you did both on online and also on the walking tours, which I think was amazing
3: mm-hmm. yeah. um, Thank you. Um, it took a very long time to find that. um, I I want to say that here because I I started, the, the seeds of this project started nine years before I actually released it. The grant was written three years after the seeds were planted in my brain, and it took me six years to do it. And we don't often in our academic environment and certainly outside of academia don't have the privilege of that time. But I don't think I could have done it, done it in an accountable way have I not had the time. So I, I just want to flag that. As a, I think it's a requirement for, for uh, taking on accountability is to allow for time, to allow for conversations and to really find out who who needs to make decisions, which really changed in in the process of that project. So I I came in... It wasn't my intention to work uh, solely with Palestinians. My intention was to work with a Palestinian filmmaker who would work with Palestinians. I wanted to work with Israelis about how they feel about living in those houses that were stolen from Palestinians. And... um, It turned out that it wasn't possible for, again, complex political reasons, the the BDS, the problems with the normalizing discourse, all these dialogue projects that made it seem like we're talking to each other, everything is moving forward, while the occupation was only entrenching and expanding. So to, to actually have a relationship where uh, if, even if we internally could do co-creation between a Palestinian and an Israeli filmmaker, myself and Palestinian filmmaker, I think it would have ethically been wrong, because the reality is is that you can't have co-creation. You can't. We're not talking from the same positions of power. So I came to the project with two levels of power: as an Israeli working with Palestinians, and as the filmmaker working with. Uh, people who are not professional filmmakers, except for one. And I was so aware of my power all the time, and it made for a very fragile but also very productive relationship. And uh, at the end of it, what came to me is to realize that um, I am the nervous system of this project, but I'm not its heart. Its heart is Palestinian. And it's not things are I am I am there and I'm not denying that I'm there and I can't hide it. It would be unethical to to just put the Palestinian stories out there without saying that I was it all kind of was mediated through me. But I really um negotiated my presence and how material comes and who has the right to make decisions, especially because it's a lot of short films, it's a walking tour virtual walking tour that you do online, and when you get to the houses of participants you can watch films that were made with them, there are 15 films and the last word on how the films were what the film looked like was always with the participants and at least in two cases fantastic documentary material is left out, because that's what they wanted and that's fine Um, so I think I've gone off on a tangent, but just maybe I'm starting to talk about the relationship of doing work um, when you're when you're working in um, unsettling framework.
4: Um,
2: But anyways, yeah, Yeah. and and I mean, I don't get what um, what you're describing sounds to me uh, uh, like a number of the situations that I've I've also. been in over the years that um where i you know in trying to understand my my responsibilities uh, seek out okay where are the indigenous people who are actually willing to share uh and teach Mm -hmm. settler's uh, about their about their stories, their history, their language, anything like that. And in the situations where it's very, it's very purposely set up, it's an Indigenous-led, uh, I think some of the, the language that's been used, I guess a sovereign display territory, David Garneau, a Métis scholar, talks about that. It's like this is clearly set up as a place of sharing. And as a settler, that is a place to go and learn and learn how to think differently, learn what are the other values that you could... Um, Understand, and that would then inform how you act. And then from those places, um, be able to act differently. Um, and it sounds like that's what, uh, very much what uh, the kind of relationships that you were trying to set up in that project were.
3: Yeah, and, and I have to say that um, what participants wanted, there were very many levels of participation in the project, but what the participants that I worked with continually wanted was varied, some people just wanted to make it known that we were here, we had a good life, we had a rich culture. Um, just that was was really important. Some participants um, wanted to tell it to the world and not to Israelis at all, and some really wanted to reach Israelis. Um, some participants wanted to unsettle the notion of, of sovereignty of land, of the presence the present tense dominating our sense of what happens. And, um, you know, it's the same for here. You'll walk out of here, out of Stoffer Library, which was built in 1990 or 89, and has a certain kind of, creates a certain kind of physical environment, and you'll walk out. And are you going to ask yourself what was here before and when, right? And what other realities were experienced here at queens at different times. So the, the present tense really dominates our, our physical and our cognitive operations and how do we unsettle that? And unsettling and layering the past onto the present so that our sense of the present becomes more complex. That was one of my goals and one of the, some other participants. And then there are participants who really want to decolonize. And for some of them, that meant at least one woman, I'm pretty sure, um, does not want Israel to exist, which was really hard for me to to take. But I didn't have... It's not that we had an agreement that I was asking people, do you believe in, in coexistence before you can join this project? I didn't... I, that was not my job. So I I had to live with that discomfort. And um I think that in the context there's a lot of unsettling work to do and I think that when we talk about decolonization, we need to be very specific about what it means. And I take I take, I take Tuck and Young uh he very, very seriously that we need to talk about land and what happens to the land um when we talk about decolonization. So I, I don't I feel wary when we talk about decolonizing the curriculum. I'm not sure what what that exactly means. I think that decolonization is a much more active um, move towards thinking, rethinking the treaties that have been abused, thinking about unceded territories, um, really questioning very localized histories and, and coming up with mechanisms to remedy, which I'm not saying we can't do at the university, but I think it's a very particular and specific task. I think that unsettling how we think and how we are um, acting and living and walking is attainable at an individual level and at
2: an institutional level.
4: Mm
2: -hmm. I think that the... um... I also, Tuck and Yang's article is incredibly important, and the focus on land, and that, uh, that, then they also like, um, uh, we can talk about walking too. I hope we can talk about walking. Um, but the uh, another piece of that article, because it's, I if, if people here have read it, if you haven't, I really recommend it. Um, it uh, states very clearly that decolonization is not a metaphor, it is about the return of stolen lands and the centering of indigenous. Uh, ways of thinking, life ways, uh, epistemologies. And then they go through a number of uh, settler moves to innocence um, and uh, explain why they are moves to innocence. One of, And one of them is uh, to decolonize the mind, um, which when we talk about decolonizing a curriculum, that often is that work. It is decolonizing the mind. And the way they talk about that being a, a move to innocence is that... Um, can change the ways that people might think differently and how feel differently, but actually, still they would still the structures will remain in place that uh, that hold indigenous lands and continue to harm indigenous people. Um, they do, however, in that section also say that given the uh, the incredible violence that is done to indigenous people every day, that the, to, that decolonizing the mind um, may actually just be a piece of settler harm reduction. That is necessary until um, there's a, a actual decolonization, and that we could think about it in that way. And actually, I was I was first I was taken aback by thinking about that term of settler harm reduction. It comes from uh, harm reduction, like that, uh, which is used in the, in uh, fields of health and uh, in terms of like drug drug use and uh, substance abuse. And that harm reduction just like puts things in place until somebody can be well enough. To keep them alive until they can be well enough to actually uh, fully live in the world again. Um, and I was at first thought, well, like, I don't know how people who work in that field would think about using harm reduction as a metaphor. But then, actually, if I thought about it uh, deeper, it's not a metaphor, actually, right? That, that harm reduction is a real thing in the world. And so, that's another uh, piece that I, I do. You know, I when I teach, I also like aim to like teach differently, to think differently, to to ground everything I teach them exactly where I'm working, um, and try and have what I'm doing change the relationships to that land. Uh, But it's also aware that there's another piece of it, which is that that harm reduction piece. Um, I think that um, uh, the
3: settler harm reduction concept is actually very useful in. in a couple of ways. So I, I, th- I arrived in North America uh, when uh, political correctness was just coming about. And, and I came from... Israel is a very direct culture, very, very direct, brutally direct. I would come out of film critiques in my undergraduate, in my BFA, with my ego like an inch from the ground because... <laughs> and, and then I had to make decisions about what I take and what I don't take. And then I came to do an MFA, and everyone would say... I like it. I like your you know I would show an edit, and I know there are problems in it, but no one tells me what the problems are so um, so I came into this this moment where political correctness was coming on, and i it was really having a chilling effect on how people spoke in public and I at first, I thought, this is a horrible idea. this is just going to shove the racism and the sexism under the carpet. People will learn how to speak, but it won't actually change the it won't. Uh, change the mind right it't but I have to say that it has changed minds it 's a slow process, but the way we speak changed the way we think it doesn't it doesn 't mean there aren 't racist and sexist and misogynists out there, um, and it won 't reach everyone, but as a culture, it, when we speak long enough in different terms, we have a change in, we can have, and when when it's not just speaking, but when it is is also uh, compounded with policies, we do see, we can see change, behavioural change, cultural changes. So I would say that settler harm reduction and education and language use, like doing land acknowledgements and... um, situating ourselves as settlers are all necessary but insufficient conditions for decolonization. Mm-hmm. There are necessary steps that we have to take so that we can actually start walking the walk and think about what does accountability really really manifest itself beyond individual accountability. What, what do we need to do? And uh, so, th- so that's why I think where it comes, use- it's
2: useful, and it's not just a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, the, we, we could uh, maybe we could talk about land acknowledgments a bit, and because uh, that seemed to be a, a topic that was uh, Alison said was relevant here, um, and th- that idea of repetition um, that I think is uh, as this as the practice has uh, developed and spread across. Uh, across the nation, and I think maybe in the last 15 years. I thought, certainly on the West Coast, the practice was happening at least 15 years ago, and then it's, it seems to have been uh, uh, spreading since that time. And there are uh, so many different... It, actually, I... There are so many different responses and conversations and uh, uh, in, about the inadequacies of it and also the powers of it. and it's a really it's a fraught thing, which is really, I think, very useful, points out how useful they are. one um, uh, one critique has been about, well, that's just it's just words, no one does anything. Um, but then I also, Think a lot about okay that um, where are those where are those words happening and who is the person saying those words and that really really matters quite a lot. Um, so uh, and uh, even if they are a repetition of a standard phrase that has been agreed upon by a university, um, that to understand that there's a great deal of negotiation that probably went into that standard phrase that um, by local leadership within an institution and that this is the phrase that um, was, you know, finely crafted. Um, And to say that phrase means to respect that work. But to only say that phrase is... It's it's the very minimal. Um, And it is, I think, often the thing that triggers that. Sort of like, well, why did you say that? Why did you... Like, why are you even saying... Are you just saying it because you're checking the box? Um, Yet, in because I'm coming from, I'm from a field of performance studies, and I think about performance and speech acts, and the sort of performativity of a speech act, and also the significance of repetition. Um, And so that repetition, um, that actually does work in the world. Um, And so to have repetition happen over and over again, and then actually, um, on the West Coast, there was uh, uh, a newcomer from Israel who you know, showed up and like heard this and started to hear it over and over again. And then he said to me, "Why are they even saying that? Like, why? Why is it just words? Like, what's going on? Like, someone has to do something, right?" And so that was eventually the reaction to the the repetition that it, that it meant something. And then, when there is a repetition, and then the repetition is absent, that absence of that suddenly means something, right? And so those things, are, those things are all do matter. And then also. The way that an inadequate land acknowledgement foregrounds the sort of failures of a a settler relation to land, Um, which in in an audience full of settlers and newcomers and people who are not Indigenous, um, that discomfort and that sort of foregrounding of like, we don't know where we are. We have no idea what our responsibilities are here. And realizing that can actually be a very useful thing. If it's... um, in an audience that includes indigenous people of that land who have been continuously harmed by that ignorance, that, that cannot then have be further harming. So there's all all of those sort of things are packed into land acknowledgements. And that and I also think about particularly land acknowledgements in educational institutions, um, uh, and how how significant they are because education um, has been such a source of like it's been the source of of the cultural genocide in this, in this country, and that educational institutions were places where Indigenous people were um, not allowed in, and also the, the curriculum in these places actually continued the harm and the violence to Indigenous people. And so in an educational institution in particular, the speaking of a land acknowledgement is an incredibly political act, and the not speaking of it is also an incredibly political act. And so those things I think are very important, and that that's situ- like that's very situational and relational act, um, and it's really complicated and uh, changes the relations in a room when it happens.
3: Yeah, I would add that uh, I see land acknowledgement as an opportunity um, to situate myself, by by you know in the way that we did. We did, but also to really ground it in the here and now. And um, so I think that for me, when, when I, you know, I, I don't know that I... Yeah, when I do land acknowledgement, I usually talk... Like this morning, if I did it, I would have talked about the wind that kept me up last night and made me um, think about the roof over my head, about the power that I was worried will... Go out and how I will manage my morning without power, um, about being the people who don't have shelter and protection. So, normally, I think in our day to day, we don't think that much about the weather, about the physical, the physicality of where we're at. And, um, so having, having that relationship and then tying it to, um, to me, it's tying it into the failure of uh, Western science and technology to uh, deal with climate change um, or the political failure to listen to scientists who have been saying it for 50 years and also the, the contribution to the destruction of the environment. Um, so when, when I... What I try to do as a practice, as a daily practice, is to think about what the indigenous concept of stewardship means to me and the idea of uh, that the decisions we make, that the decisions I make on a daily basis will have effects seven generations down the road. So if I am a little lazy and I'm going to take my car rather than my bike, that is a small act. It's not a big act, but it's a small act. Um, and there are certain acts I can, I can take. And I'm, and I'm not, I'm not romanticizing it. You know, this morning I cut my fruit and it had a mango and it had a clementine. And honestly, if I had to only live on things that grow here, I would probably be a very sad person (laughs) because, um, I grew up in Israel where there are four different climates in a tiny little country. So you have fresh fruits and vegetables all year round. And, I really miss that in, in winter here. So I, I'm it, I'm not saying this is an easy or simple thing, but there are ways in which, if it's not just repetition, if you if you take it on and make it your own, it becomes meaningful and it becomes a conversation starter, and that's what creates the, the relationality to other humans in the room and outside of the room, to our history and to our environment Um, just a couple of things that words that kind of I also use land acknowledgements as opportunities to unpack so uh, for me often land acknowledgements will say that we're guests or visitors I'm not a guest I'm an immigrant I I came here to stay I want to be very honest about it I want to learn how to live uh, respectfully with uh, alongside indigenous people I think to me it means that we need to share political power in very thoughtful way, um, but I'm, uh, visitors come and then they leave, <laughs> and they don't change your country, they don't change, you know, they don't take and pillage and all of that, so language ma- does matter, and I think that land acknowledgments are opportunities to unpack languages. When we say these are the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people, we we acknowledge a past, it may make it easier, easier. it can lead to this kind of settler move to innocence. Oh, that's the past, it doesn't mean it's the present, it's inflecting the present tense. What happens if we actually change, change it and say, we are on Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe land, even if the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people don't have all the rights to these lands that completely changes the conversation, right? So I, th- I think those are really productive opportunities.
1: I'd like to, the conversation's gone very quickly, um, but it continues. Um, please, I invite you to come to the microphone and pose your questions and enter into the conversation, which will open up to the room. Reminder to just state your name before you ask your question or,
4: or make a comment, thank you. Hi, I'm Joyce Harston. Um so I wanted to ask a question related to the decolonizing curriculum versus unsettling, how we think, act, live, and work, walk. And I'm interested in rewilding and the phrase becoming indigenous. So for me, rewilding is about all of those things, rewilding how we think, how we eat, how we work. Um, but becoming indigenous, I ran across that phrase And it calls to me, and yet it also feels like it could be, um, what's the word? Appropriating? Sorry?
3: Appropriating? Yes,
4: yes, yes. And then I spoke to somebody who had an elder come and speak at KCBI. And that came up, that phrase. And he told a story of a longhouse, and I don't remember much about the story, but he told a story about the longhouse and how... In, well, settlers were invited to the longhouse to set a bunk. And that accepting that would mean becoming indigenous with a little eye versus a big eye. So my question is around, what is your thoughts on the phrase becoming indigenous as a way of reconnecting with the land and unsettling the mind or rewilding?
2: Um, so I, I've actually never heard that phrase before, so that's interesting for me to to hear it. Um, uh, and my I guess my my first thoughts are um, thinking about uh, about kinship um, and that and the responsibilities of kinship. Um, so the way that uh, the way that I understand the, the uh, what's meant by indigenous people is indigenous people have a unique and uh, long-standing relationship with a very sp- with with, with a specific land that they have cared for over like many millennia. Um, so uh, to become in to be in relationship uh, to be in good relationship with indigenous people of a land. Um, that is not a settler extractive relationship is absolutely possible and I and I hold out great hope that that everybody here could one day do that um, I wouldn't call that to become indigenous mm-hmm. um, I would, I would say it's possible to like to think about kinship because of course there are there are people who enter into kinship relationships. Um, uh, all uh, cross culturally, all over the place, and if you are in a kinship relationship, you have ongoing responsibilities for those for the people who are who are your kin, um, and uh, that would be different, right? Uh, that um, because uh, um, I think about the kinds of things like if you think about your family members, and if one of your one of your family members, you know, is in a hospital, like if they if there are like things happening with your your kin, your family, you are compelled to act in order to like care for the care for them and so that everybody is again fine um, and that's a very different relationship than um, you've been invited and some knowledge has been shared with you so that you understand it differently how to be in that place um, so that's those are the anyway, those are the kinds of things that float up for me um,
4: so when you use the word kinship is that kinship also with the land and the beings of the land I mean I would hope
2: yeah thanks that's a great that's a great question yeah I would I would definitely think so. and that's something that I like I am trying to like not have a a settler relation extractive relation to land and waters that is also how to think about what are the what is the kin relations um, across all all beings right Um, for sure and the the kinds of care and responsibility necessary for that Um, and those are can be beautiful metaphors, um, but actually, the actions to 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 really be in relation that way um, are very difficult and long standing um, work that has to be done. Um, so, thanks for that question. For sure.
3: Yeah, I would only add that uh, I think one of the interesting things that I th- I'm not an expert on this by any stretch of the imagination, but I've noticed happen um, since the Idol No More movement is that uh, where for a long time, environmentalists and, and indigenous activism were often at odds, like in the case of seal hunting and other things. Uh, there started to be some uh, synergy around common common goals, and uh, I think certainly for Western environmentalists to realize that a lot of the uh, the methods that were taken were not going where they needed to go they were not doing what needed to be done and um, some of it I think has to do with even the notion that we're responsible for nature rather than part of nature so this is a very deep again a very deep change to think about kin as not just humans but the more than human and our relationship to that.
5: Hi, thanks so much for your comments. My name is Colleen Davison. I'm a faculty member here in public health sciences. Um, so I do work that's, um, both with indigenous populations and, and globally, internationally with, um, many populations that I grapple with power and privilege in an international sense, I think. And <clears throat> I, I really like the comment, um, the conversation was too late, but also possibly too early at the same time and I think that there's many that are in that situation like there's many topics that are that we're that we're currently struggling with that we' in that situation and One of the things that um as a person who would identify as a humanist and and as a global citizen, I struggle with. Is seeing my colleagues who are persecuted in other countries and come to Canada as refugees, then be labeled in this broad category of settler and to know the realities that their lives have had, and then to now have to take on this, uh, this broad category. Uh, I, I just don't see the fairness in that, um, as a, from a global citizen's perspective. Um, but I, I got a sense that you weren't really agreeing on the, the need for categories of settler. Um, but maybe that was wrong. I had a sense that maybe it was, if you're non-Indigenous, you're a settler. Um, but is there a place in our conversation, and maybe not now, maybe it's not the right time, but for for categories of settler or ways to reconcile the fact that there are different types of settlers And you sort of sit in relation to that in some way as an individual.
3: I I think that's what I was trying to say, is that we need various distinctions, that settler is too broad a category and that people are implicated um, in very different ways and uh, have very different responsibilities and levels of accountability and debt. Um, I, th- I think that anyone who comes here, no matter how they come here, uh, join an ongoing settler colonial project, whether they know it or not. Um, and I think that there are circumstances where, this is exactly what I said, where people arrive here out of utter desperation, um, but they're still implicated in it. And I guess what I would say is I don't think that every individual needs to take it actively on the unsettling or decolonization, um, but to pretend that you're not implicated, um, to think that you can be a bystander, I don't think that option ever exists. I think that when you think that you're just neutral and staying out of it, you're always siding with a strong party. Always. In, no matter what, whether it's sexism, racism, to to kind of say just free speech or just um, you know I don't know much about it so I'm just going to stay out of it um, you are actively siding with a strong party so not, not one person can take on all the injustices in the world, that's just impossible, uh, but to be aware of that
2: in our positionality I think is really important and I, I, I uh, agree very much with what you said Dorit, that um, both of these things are true. That if we come here, no matter how we come, we're coming to a settler colonial nation, and so we're implicated in that. Um, and yet, that are, there are uh, so many different reasons for people to have come here. That um, I, what I, uh, the part that I read from Daniel Justice's work talked about it. That it's not a value judgment; it is a political reality, and that to understand that the, the importance of using the word, while also like. Um, making room for all of the different positionalities and that's why we talk, we've we talked so much about responsibility and accountability and that these are there are gradations of that and that um, uh, and that there's a, a process to it even while it is also an emergency like we have to, there's like harm being done right now um, there, one of the things that I, I find interesting for lots of reasons um, including uh, my background as a performance studies scholar and thinking about speech acts is one of the calls to action Um, is that the citizenship oath be changed and that the citizenship oath will have in it um, that the person becoming a citizen of Canada will adhere to the treaties that have been made. Um, So it's a small small piece. It's one of the calls to action, I think, that is almost complete. Um, But it is a a piece of that that could be added in that would actually bring an awareness of the responsibility to people who eventually, after... (sighs) Time and money and everything might eventually possibly get get, um, get to be a citizen of this country. It's a very hard, a very hard and expensive process. But that's just a kind of another piece of like, how do we? And and I would think that settlers like myself, who've been here for almost 400 years, my family's been here. I hold a lot of responsibility. And how would I interact with somebody who's come here as a refugee? And how could I explain to them? Um, what is the situation here and how, um, how it's related to the situation that they've had to leave uh, from where they're from and that this is all part of a global network of imperialism that is, like, has been ongoing for, for centuries and that while well, they are now safer than they were um, that there's implications of being here and that, that it seems to me that I, I have a particular responsibility in my specific positionality um, to work in that way.
4: Hi, um, I'm Laura Murray. Thank you very much. Um, I think I have a comment and a question. The comment is, um, as a, a settler scholar like you, um, I'm really not comfortable with this language of burden. Um, I feel like, look, I have very little burden compared to indigenous
1: people,
3: people of color. Uh, it, it, it sounds to me too much like Rudyard Kipling. I just can't go there. So that's my comment. Um, and my question is, I'm wondering, Selena, if you can tell us a little bit about your new book, which we can't have read yet, so, you know, inviting you to give a little uh, example of what you've been doing,
2: having set this kind of ground that you've talked about uh, today. I'd like okay. to, I'm curious okay. about it. Right. Thank you. Um, and thanks for that comment about Burton and Rudyard Kipling. Oh, <laughs> um, that, uh, that definitely is a, a connection I hadn't made, um, but I'll, th- I'll think about for sure. Um, so, my book. Uh, I, I guess I, there's there's two books. I, I actually have a, I have a copy of this one. This one's and they're they're very connected. So this is called On This Patch of Grass: City Parks and Occupied Lands. Um, it's come out. It was a project that I did with my partner and our daughters and a whole lot of other scholars and friends, all based um, in in Vancouver. And it is us each from all of our perspectives, trying to use the kinds of things we've been learning and thinking about to think about this. Very nondescript park that we happen to have lived next to for 20-something years, um, and uh, it, it is about land. It's about particularly the kind of um, the fertile place of parklands in uh, in the settler colonial nation because they are not uh, they're not part of uh, market and property in the same way that other things are, but yet they're also colonial in a way that hides. Um, their colonialness. Um, so that's that. That book. Um, it came out of um, much of the work that it, that uh, we've all done over many years of trying to live and be um, in more respectful relations with like all all the beings that we live amongst. Um, and uh, my particular part in this book had to do with looking at land title and the history of. Um, that exact piece of land, and when did it shift from becoming from indigenous land to something that could be bought and sold among settlers who profited from it and then until it was eventually part of became part of the city park system. Um, so that's a whole story, and there's all sorts of like interesting uh, stories that come out of who were the people who bought and sold that land, and how do their names uh, how are their names scattered all over Vancouver and honored in certain kinds of ways um, but that my approach to that particular piece of, uh, of this chapter of this book came from uh, my monograph, which is the, it's Against the Current and Into the Light. It'll be out in January. And that um, was came out of actually very much me coming from here um, after the summer of 1990 and the resistance and the kind of politics I was embedded in here and then going to Vancouver, where suddenly there, there, was, there were all around the city Um, even then, were um, markings like Indigenous iconographies. And my only context for that coming from southern Ontario was these have all been appropriated. This whole city is full of appropriated Indigenous iconography. And I was really uncomfortable and didn't understand how could this be going on. As I lived there longer and I tried to understand what did that come from? What is this? Is this just a tourist attraction? And then eventually... For my doctoral research, started to ask that question: How is this, how has this place been maintained as an indigenous place through, through performance? Um, and performance is very, very widely defined in my my research, and so performance includes theatrical performances, but also um, speech acts and place names and um, tourist villages and monument and all of those things. So, um, and because of my positionality. I was both wanting to understand the history of the place I I was living in um, and learn from Indigenous people who have been caring for that place for millennia and yet also understand how um, uh, the the process of colonialism had happened there. And so my book is both of those things. It's a parallel inquiry into how has this this place been maintained particularly um, as an an Indigenous place and particularly um, in BC there are only... There are Douglas treaties that were signed um, on Vancouver Island and then ignored and lost for many years, and then Treaty Number Eight it, it come, is in the sort of north uh, northeastern corner of the, of the territory. And then there were no treaties when BC joined Confederation in 1871. The politicians ignored the Royal Proclamation of 1763, um, which was what was guiding all of the other t- number treaties that were being negotiated across the West. Um, at, at exactly that time, and they refused and said, no, no, we don't actually need to, to, sign, to sign treaties. And so there's, there, are no, there are no treaties, there's no guiding, there's no legal, um, uh, even by Western standards, there's no legal uh, justification for non-Indigenous presence in that land and ownership of the land. Um, so the, uh, the book is looking at what are the kinds of performances and interventions Indigenous people have made particularly in looking at this one particular uh, place um, called Hoi Hoi in Stanley Park, and it's Wapayak, another place nearby, and then a few other sites in the city. Um, and they are, some of them are historical, and you think back of, like, the kinds of, if a place name is performing, that is a performance that has gone back millennia. Um, but if also uh, times of, you know, the celebration of the 60th anniversary of the city of Vancouver, and there are, important indigenous leaders who were invited to come and speak and what did they say in those times so that's one piece of the book the other piece of the book is um uh kind of a parallel inquiry into so how has whiteness been constructed through performance in that place and then uh, and it happened to be um because i'm also kind of a historian um that i I was looking very much about archives and archives as as a source of western knowledge but also if they're are other ways of thinking about history that are not all based on documents and archives. And so the archivist of the city of Vancouver happens to have been quite an incredible character. He was uh, uh, a man who was uh, originally from Wales. His family immigrated to New Zealand. It was a failed immigration. The family fell apart. He he ended up on the shores of uh, Vancouver in the late 1800s and then made a life from there. Um, But he had had to leave school and had and was mainly he worked sort of for imperial oil or something like that and he and then uh got married very young his wife had twins he had a very you know a, a hard life in, the, in in some ways not an easy life he was however always very interested in old things and collecting old things and then eventually world war one broke out he volunteered to go even though he was in his 40s and then He uh, was shot in the head with a machine gun immediately and, like, had uh, terrible injuries from that. He lost his hearing and then also was then released because of nervous conditions, which essentially means PTSD, right? And then he came back to Vancouver and had no job. He had no... Like, his life had fallen apart. His wife left him, and he had a very difficult time. In 1930, somehow, he convinced the city of Vancouver to appoint him the archivist, Having no training and and having uh, like all, he had a presence in the city, and he had a lot of old things that he'd collected. So he became the archivist. He founded the archive, and he stayed the archivist until he died in 1970. And so the city of Vancouver Archives is completely uh, uh, formed by him and uh, is full of his uh, his perspective and his comments. And so one of the things that I found that this is big chapters of my book is that he, he was particularly interested in Lord Stanley's visit to Vancouver in 1889 and so he wrote scripts and reenacted and performed Lord Stanley dedicating the park over and over and over again um, and uh, cr- created some of that like from his own with the rhetoric that he wanted to make and it was a, kind of a disaffiliation that he he, he really wanted to have of, uh, of what British whiteness meant um, at that time um, the, the Uh, Stanley came in 1889, they gave him a tour of the park, the mayor greeted him, they stopped in the park, and uh, the mayor made a speech to him and said, we're going to honour you, and what we're going to do, in this place where we're stopping here, in this park, we're going to build a cairn to honour your your visit here, and it's going to be a cairn of all of the mineral resources of BC, which actually is an amazing uh, marking of what is the the British Imperial Project here, right? Um, That cairn was never built, and so... um, Lord uh, Matthews, as the archivist at some point in the fifties, bound that letter and was, took it on personally. That. He, that Vancouver hadn't taken responsibility for this promise, and so he wanted to fulfill that promise. And what that ended up becoming was um, a statue that he designed and commissioned and crowdsourced all the funding for, and it's a statue of Lord Stanley that sits in the the entrance of the park with his arms raised up in the air and saying, I dedicate this place to people of all colours, creeds, and customs for their use and pleasure for all time. Um, That is completely made up. (laughs) That is not what Lord (laughs) Stanley said. And so... um, which is a, uh, in the the kind of parallel working of how is this place maintained as indigenous and how is it um, how are the what are the attempts made through performance to create a, a colonial place of whiteness and that's that's essentially the book along with a number of I'll say the last this last thing the the one of the struggles I had is as I was working in these archives um, that. Uh, there were no indigenous women in the archives. There so very few indigenous people, and certainly no indigenous women. And so, I did not want to write a book that had was about indigenous land and people and place that had no women in it. Um, and so, in amongst the chapters, um, there are uh, my responses to interventions that of indigenous. Theatre artists who are performing while I'm while I'm writing the book that have to do, and they're all making interventions into the kinds of narratives that, that settler settlers are saying about about their places, um, as a way to kind of argue that uh, there are ind- indigenous, very strong indigenous women making interventions right here, right now, and clearly they were then too. There's no record of them then, but they're here.
1: We're going to have one more question, um, but um, the conversation doesn't have to end right at 11.30. Um, We have this room until 12, and after the last question, there will be ongoing questions, and they can be held more informally um, as you mingle in the room. So,
6: I'll make this maybe more quick with a comment as opposed to a question. So my name is Katie, and... I like to describe myself more as an unsettled settler um, as I move forward in my own path of reconciliation, as we know that, to now be in Canada. And um, I just wanted to make a comment, uh, um, just providing a little bit of um, um, hope, I guess, and a little bit of direction or guidance from my journey, is that... Um, We think of land and reconciliation as very large topics that we don't have a say in or can't do anything about or come alongside Indigenous friends, but we need to remind ourselves that the TRC has invited us as individuals to take part in the calls to action, that it's not just this large government document that only the government will settle, but that Justice Murray Sinclair says that it will be individual acts of reconciliation and community-based programs that will give way to reconciliation. So some of the ways I have done it was just exactly as described by our guests up here is being very mindful of water, what comes through the tap. I'm on well water in the country, so sometimes I do have issues, and anyways. And when we look at a package of Nestle water, that's, you know, 25 bottles or whatever, and that same case that's two dollars down here is 8'3 in Nunavut, um, how we purchase our food and what our food costs. And and when we put one foot in front of the other to, you know, um, change materialistic habits and and our place on the land, that gives way to what awareness, more education, balancing what we are learning with um, listening, participating in things like this, in the institutions we have been come to, whether it's for work, play, or education, and um, and then just simply is action when we are comfortable to do so and those doors open. So I think sometimes as settlers, we, we want to move forward very quickly. And as bystanders, we think this is just too enormous. We don't do anything. Or perhaps we also feel like we have not been given permission to do so when indeed we have. It's just we need to do it very delicately. So I just wanted to thank you for um, affirming what many um, friends I know have, have been doing as well as um, affirming the words of very dear um, indigenous friends who we have who and communities who are saying no this this is right keep moving forward but um, but to do it by listening and um, invitation thank you
2: and um, I just want to thank you very much for your comment and it's I I uh, also, I'm guided often by the calls to action. There are many calls to action in there about uh, about education systems, about um, about uh, knowledge, the way that knowledge in, of culture is transmitted um, in cultural institutions, um, and also about uh, and about monument and and uh, uh, representations of history. So they're all very uh, very connect, connected into the. the ways that I'm, I'm trying to work in, and, and they inform me. The other piece I always keep in mind about the calls to action is the calls to action are coming out of the Indian residential school inquiry. They are very specific about residential schools, although the commissioners are incredibly uh, thoughtful in that embedded in the calls to actions are 23 of the calls to action mentioned under the United Nations Declarations of the Rights of Indigenous People, and that is a way that brings in a much, much larger uh, structure a way to un- to understand the structure of uh, of c- colonialism and to uh, to unpack it using UNDRIP So there's, uh, I I, w- I was trying to pay attention to those as those parts of it as well. Yeah, I would <clears throat>
3: just say that I just found out that Kingston has anywhere between eight thousand to ten thousand Indigenous people living here, which is you know almost ten percent of this city. So. Uh, and yet, the visibility of the indigenous community here is is not high. But there are there are events, and uh, I think one way to kind of take those steps is to to go and support uh, various various events. Thank you very much
1: to our speakers. Thank you to our audience. Please do stay and enjoy some tea. Um, I have a couple, I have some small gifts on behalf of the Faculty of Arts and Science and the
0: library to offer you, but thank you very much. You have been listening to a conversation in the Fireplace Series at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I am Dr. Barbara Crowe, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science, Music for this series is from the composition The Passion of Angels by Queen's University composer Marianne Mosetic. Thanks for listening.